so much for joining us on Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Dr. Bessam Ogretman, who is a professor of biochemistry, associate director for basic sciences at the Hollings Cancer Center, and associate dean for research at the College of Medicine at MUSC, the Medical University of South Carolina. We are talking to you today about your research that you've done around a specific COVID biomarker. And you have been researching lots of different things and you do a lot of cancer research, but during COVID you pivoted a little bit and found that researching one specific lipid or research about one specific lipid revealed that you can detect who may or may not have a symptomatic reaction or a severe symptomatic reaction to COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit about your research, the, the basics of what you found? Sure. Uh, so like you said, you know, we were looking at whether these uh, bi- uh, lipids can actually act as serologic biomarkers to identify who would be symptomatic versus who would be asymptomatic after they, you know, become positive to COVID-19. And we found that one there's one specific lipid which is called sphingosine is highly reduced in the symptomatic patients. This was actually uh, almost 99%, 98, 99% of the patients have shown reduction of this lipid in their serum and they are the symptomatic patients. And they actually, this is something that you said, you think you're, you have to do more research, but you think is inherently low levels for them. It's not something that gets reduced whenever they get COVID-19. It's something that you should be able to test. So you said that there's multiple applications that originally you were thinking of whenever vaccines were not widely available. You thought that this might be something that you could use to test people to determine if they had this baseline low level lipid at a lipid level. And if they did, then prioritize those people for vaccination because they are more likely to have a symptomatic response. That's right. So initially, you know, our idea was to understand, you know, why some people show symptoms and why some don't. Although, you know, both populations become positive for antibody. So they are exposed to the virus but some are symptomatic and some asymptomatic. And we wanted to understand if there are some biomarkers that can actually identify and help us identify these. And so uh, I guess the implications are interesting because like you said, you know, if there are limited amounts of vaccines or other treatment options, so you want to identify who would be benefit most so who would be the more vulnerable in population? So this low level of lipids might be able to tell us, you know, who, who should be getting the first line of treatments. Dr. Gredman, I find that really interesting that you found, identified this biomarker. As you're explaining uh, what your, your thought process is, it feels like you could apply this at the stage of prevention, which is, is I think how you wanted to use it, but then you could also apply it potentially to the stage of treatment. Maybe once the person is infected and, and they become symptomatic, now you wanna know who's more likely to get sick. Uh, you could also potentially, you were telling us earlier, use it to identify who are the people that should maybe get the next round of vaccine, the boosters. 
So could you help us understand for, for our audience particularly, how does a scientist go through that process of figuring out how a best biomarker may be most helpful? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and there are many markers that have been identified as we move along in similar studies. So our idea was to use our expertise at MUSC. So we have a you know, world-class uh, lipidomics center where we can measure lipids in, in serum and other uh, specimens. And so we, we thought, you know, let's use our expertise and see if these lipids who are also, which are also identified as biomarkers in other diseases like cardiovascular disease and cancer. So, you know, basically we were actually just trying to help uh, the field and see whether we can contribute uh, to have some identification of some of these lipids as potential biomarkers. So it was purely scientific and collaborative work at MUSC. So we used many different expertise and, and so that we can contribute to the field. And we are hoping that this will be the initial part and we can you know, move forward to identify you know, whether this is inherited problem in some patients so they become more, more vulnerable or their the responses to the, the viral infection becomes less uh, active so that these lipids are much lower during this response to uh, viral infection. So these are the questions that we are trying to answer uh, to understand what's going on in, in some people, like I said, becoming more severely ill and one ones uh, and the ones that don't have any symptoms a follow-up question that comes to my mind on the on that basis is is there something like a lipid profile similar to a genomic profile and should many people are now getting their genomic profile done should we be also thinking about getting a lipid profile done do they kind of go hand in hand obviously the genes lead to the encoding of the of the proteins but where does this go and maybe if I could throw a second question in there as well, is, uh, is the field of personalized medicine that ultimately also not only just about the genes, but also ultimately about the proteins? Could you comment on both of those, please? Yeah, great question. You know, as you know, the omics, uh, genomics and proteomics have been you know, very important for personalized medicine and detection of biomarkers. So we now the lipidomics, which measure lipids, in, in again in serum and other tissues, uh, they it become it became very important biomarker detection system, and we believe that you know some of these lipids and lipidomics uh, might become important for detection of early detection of some of the diseases, and uh, and also like you said you know uh, personalized medicine becomes important here. And some people actually have reduced lipids and some have higher lipids. So based on those kind of genomics and lipidomics, maybe work together to, to identify who would be vulnerable, more vulnerable, uh, more than others, you know. And so, yeah, you are on, uh, actually right. And we believe that the lipid, lipids might also be very important to detect for these kind of mm -hmm. early detections as well as 
you know, therapeutics. The specific lipid that you're talking about, the and I'll probably say this wrong because I don't know what it is, but sphingo, sphingosphine. What, <laughs> what is that lipid typically used for? And is that something, because so many things in medicine, you know, your cholesterol, your blood pressure, you can control through diet, exercise, other types of things. Is there anything that people can do to boost that specific lipid? Yeah, that's a great question. Just like cholesterol, this is a class of lipid, you know, sphingolipid it's called. And the, uh, the, the one of the molecules is called sphingosine. And so that's what we found, you know, this particular lipid. And, and there are, you know, uh, some advances in the lipidomics field where lipid analogs can be used as drugs or therapeutic agents. So for example, this lipid, which is low in, you know, symptomatic patients, uh, you know, we are trying to understand whether that can be used as a, uh, you know, some sort of therapeutic agent to prevent infection. So these lipid analogs can be used uh, to boost that lipid back to normal levels. And, you know, there are some diet uh, that can contain some of these lipids, and, you know, although the sphingolipids are not very major in diet, uh, there might be some uh, dietary remedies that can boost uh, this lipid. And uh, actually, there are some chemopreventive uh, dietary compounds that are known to induce these sphingolipids. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm not so familiar with the preventive uh, dietary conditions where this lipid, particular lipid can be selectively induced. With the research that you did, you found, you know, people with higher levels of this had um, asymptomatic cases and people with lower levels had symptomatic cases, but the people who had the higher levels are theirs within the normal range of that lipid or are they on the high range of that lipid? Yeah, great question. We found that there was a slight increase uh, in their levels compared to negative, anti-body negative population. So they were actually getting much better response once they were infected with the virus. So it could be something, you know, more stress response uh, uh, kind of thing. So people, some people are actually response much better to viral infection by increasing this lipid, uh, which studies show that can be protective of the actual infection to the lungs. That's fascinating, Dr. Gregman. I, I never realized how, how interesting I would find this whole subject. Uh, so, so on the idea of what you said, lipidomics, I'm, I'm really curious to know, in general, beyond the biomarker sphingosin that you've identified, how advanced is the field in terms of its readiness to come to a, a CVS near you? Are there already examples of, of places that, that are using lipid biomarkers uh, in, in real time to help detect conditions? Are there, do you already have examples of, of uh, therapeutic agents you're starting to use in this way? Or are we still a few years out from that scenario? Yeah, great question. So first, you know, for the uh, biomarker field, 
some of these lipids, uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but you know they are used for cardiovascular disease predictions. So some actually some of my colleagues think that you know these sphingolipids actually are almost as good as cholesterol for predicting cardiovascular diseases. And in some cancer as well, so we are working with some of our uh, patients to see whether these lipids also be biomarkers to look at response to the chemotherapy and some other therapeutic agents in cancer settings. So that was about the biomarkers and you know predictive uh, uh, qualities of these lipids, but also there are some therapeutic aspects of uh, these lipids. Like I said, you know there are some lipid analog drugs. So there is, for example, one drug that has been approved for uh, FDA for multiple sclerosis. So that's a lipid analog drug, that uh, sphingolipid analog drug. And we have one uh, lipid uh, enzyme inhibitor uh, that is in the phase two clinical trials at Holland's Cancer Center for prostate cancer patients. And then uh, I know in the field, there are lipid analog drugs that are also in phase one or phase two clinical trials for solid cancer uh, treatments. Oh, fascinating. So you think, you think within the next five years, we're going to see a lot more of this uh, type of, uh, you know, ther therapeutics, vaccines, preventative measures. You think it's going to take off in the next five years? Uh, yes, we think so. You know, again, compared to proteins, the lipids have been in the back burner for a long time. And now in the, in the past 15 years or so, uh, it became very uh, important especially after FDA approved this lipid analog drug for multiple sclerosis, it showed that you know, this pathway can be draggable in patients in a safe manner. So after that, you know, uh, you know, we have all many tools to study this met metabolic pathway. And so now uh, more therapeutic companies and uh, you know, including some of our biotech spin-off companies trying to use some of these mechanistic studies to come up with new drugs and new therapies. And we are hoping that, you know, in the next five years, there will be more, uh, more lipid analogs drugs in the clinic. It's funny because whenever you describe this, you know, like uh, the lipid research is about to have its moment. You know, it sounds like how people describe things is like an overnight success. Meanwhile, these people have been working for a year, you know, like a band working or for 10 years in the clubs before they make it big. And that's I feel right. like that's how you're describing the lipid research. Like you've been in the lab for several <laughs> decades working that's hard and now finally it's about to pay off. But I mean, really, you just don't hear it until now. Uh, you don't hear about lipid research and all the different ways that that can be applied and really make a huge difference in medicine. But the work that you're doing, especially with cancer patients too, which is something that just unfortunately continues to, to grow in the population, uh, it, it just has to be amazing to you. And so personally fulfilling to be able to see that you can change the lives of people through the work that you're doing. What what gives you that passion to do that every day? It's amazing, you know, in the cancer center, especially, you know, we use the same elevators with our patients and their families. And so in our, our job is really to help 
anybody that we could based on our research and our expertise. And I always tell my students, you know, when you take the elevator and you see the patients and their families, just to remember that, you know, what you do in the lab uh, makes a difference in their lives. So, so that's the idea, you know, how can we use our expertise and our day-to-day -day experiments to have some implications to touch somebody and their families, you know. Uh, as you know, it's a very uh, severe disease and, you know, many different and difficult outcomes. And, and so, but, you know, we are hopeful that the cancer research and other uh, research, uh, and, and one thing that this COVID, I think, taught us as a nation and as people, research is so important to come up with, you know, who's going to be more vulnerable and what kind of treatment options that we will have for people. I think uh, in population now, I think uh, the research became much more important in their minds that when you, know, when you are exposed to something that nobody knew what it was and how to fight it, everybody looked up to the researchers and to get some guidance to what to do, you know? And so I think I, one thing that positive that came out of this, hopefully is the importance of research that was understood in the population more. I really appreciate your, your insights here. Uh, and, and I think that the thing, as Tiffany's saying, you, you, know, you know probably lots of people that have heard of lipidomics. Uh, many of us have never really heard of it. And our audience, I think, is going to think, wow, I never realized that there was this field out there. Uh, you're toiling away for, for decades and just working in the background until the opportunity arises, as you're saying, the COVID pandemic comes about. And now suddenly people hopefully are realizing more about epidemiology and about vaccines and about hopefully uh, lipidomics as well. Uh, so, so the question I have is, as if you weren't busy enough throughout all of this, the pandemic hits, you're already doing so much research, and yet you're thinking very creatively and openly and collaboratively, and you decide that I'm working on something that might be able to help in this area. I, I find that just entirely fascinating because it's so easy to just think that you can, you're such a technical expert in what you do. You're just going to continue to stay heads down and focus on that. Can you help us understand, get inside your brain a little bit as to what allows for someone like yourselves to really think creatively and openly and collaboratively and, and want to be able to walk down the hall and, and, and talk with your your colleagues about how you might be able to do something different to help with the pandemic. Yeah, so that's a great point. And that's why we are scientists, you know, our minds think always, you know, how can we help people and what can we do to, you know, to advance the field. And, you know, again, everything was shut down during COVID and, you know, we, our labs were kind of in the minimal, you know, productive situation. And so we were always talking with my colleagues here about, you know, what can we do? Because every day we were getting all these death uh, numbers from COVID and, you know, it was just, uh, you know, unbelievable situation. And we always think, you know, how can we actually use our expertise to help the situation at the moment, you know? 
we could have easily said, well, let's just wait and see what happens and, you know, and do our business as usual. Uh, but, you know, we, we selected, okay, let's do something that we can help maybe. We didn't know what the results were going to be. And, and uh, we are you know, hopeful that this might be actually helpful for advancing our understanding of how some people become more vulnerable and how can we help at the end, you know. I love that. I, it takes so much courage and also, um, I, I don't even have the right word for it, but it's really, you know, courage and then uh, just that extra oomph to push through. Because as, as Apoorv said, during COVID, everybody, I think, was stretched to their max, whether it was mentally trying to deal with everything or people like you who are dealing with actual, you know, situations and trying to do this research to make a difference. And it just, it takes a lot to, to do all of that. And it's something that we've heard over and over and over, both in our interviews with everybody at MUSC and also with all of the people. Again, our tagline is different perspectives, empowering solutions. And the people who were truly out there making change seem to have this common thread of both collaboration, but also creative empowerment. And they don't seem to sense the, the limitations on them. And you seem that way. So what is it about you and your team that allows you to go in and think not only like, okay, we normally do cancer research and we're doing this and that's super important. And you really don't have a good reason to stray away from that because it's such a huge problem. But somehow you both felt empowered that you could pivot and do something else like that, that you were you know, and your team's all on board for it and the interest and excitement around it. So what is it about that team culture or, you know, your environment that's allowing you and your team to think that way and do these big things? Yeah, I think I should mention also that, you know, this is not only our collaboration, but all the work that has been done earlier in COVID-19, uh, both in patients and research. Because, you know, earlier studies show that there is a lot of cytokine storm and, you know, uh, inflammation-related uh, complications in, in COVID-19 uh, symptoms. And we knew from the literature that these lipids play a lot of roles in this inflammation and the cytokine production. So we, it didn't just, you know, fell out of the blue. But we knew the literature, both in the lipid field, uh, as well as in the new upcoming uh, results from the COVID-19 related research, all of, from all over the world, actually. And so, you know, science is a cumulative work. So somebody somewhere else in the, you know, the whole world, you know, publishes something and that triggers something in our brain to say and make connections between what we know from our field and what has been published in other fields, in this case, in COVID-19. So that, you know, allows you to, you know, advance the field based on the knowledge that we gather as a collective scientific community. And so that's so important. I, you know, I like to highlight uh, knowing the literature as well as knowing not only your field, but you know, other fields as much as possible, you know, can allow you to make those links. 
between your field and others that maybe you are not as an expert, but you can actually make some connections between these fields. Thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. I learned so much about a field I knew nothing about. And this was really amazing. I love what you're doing. And it sounds like it's really going to make a huge difference in the future. Hopefully, yes, that's what the idea is. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into the scientific process as well. It's a unique uh, opportunity for both of us and, and for our audience. So thank you so much, for Dr. Gretman, for everything you're doing. Sure. Thank you for talking to me. And thank you all for watching. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.